today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Correct. They all want to talk about it and how important it is and employers understand it, but like we actually deliver results that, that lead to true and measurable improvement in financial wellness. Now it's it's very specific to what this one topic, but but that is like the foundation of what people's financial health is based on. Do I have money set aside in case things go awry in my life? Um, and so, but it's interesting on the payroll providers. I think part of it is, is that um, when you talk to these different companies, it's, it's more about who's getting asked by the employers that they support for emergency savings. And so if I'm a benefits provider or I'm in charge of financial wellness at a company, Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. There are a couple of things about advances in financial services that continuously get me juiced, even after a decade of covering the space. One is when new products emerge that just work, whether that's through integrating into existing platforms or through automation. There's something almost magical when that happens. Another thing that inspires is inclusiveness. There's so much being done at fintechs and incumbents that will make financial services more inclusive in the future. SecureSave ticks both of those boxes. It's trying to popularize the emergency savings account. Haven't heard of an ESA? That's okay, I hadn't either. But it functions similar to a health savings account and is intended to help employees save for an emergency. Offered through employers, an ESA is likely to have the same preferred tax treatment an HSA has if Devin Miller has his way. With a strong background in financial software, Devin is a co-founder of SecureSave and is following the HSA playbook for bringing his firm and HSAs to market. Devin Miller is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So I'm Devin Miller, one of the co-founders of SecureSave, and SecureSave is a financial technology product that is trying to reinvent the emergency savings account. And we do that by working with employers and then big financial services companies to provide emergency savings accounts to usually employees through their company as a new type of workplace uh, savings program. Awesome. And, and welcome to the show, Devin. Um, I'd love to hear about the structure of an ESA. Maybe we can first start with that. What is an emergency savings account? So an emergency savings account is kind of a new category of workplace savings uh, product, essentially. And so think about like the 401k or the health savings account. So 401k has been around for like 40 years. HSA has been around about 20 years. And predominantly, those are especially the 401k products that you get from your employer through work. And the ESA or emergency savings account is very similar. And so it's something that predominantly is uh, introduced to an employee by their employer. It has an automatic payroll deduction to it, just like an HSA or 401k. And there are incentives provided by the employer. It's pretty new, though, in the sense that um, unlike the HSA or 401k, it's not really like a government structured program. HSAs have really good tax advantages, 401ks as well. The ESA is in its infancy, but there is pending legislation around ESAs. Uh, there's likely going to be tax advantages and more automation, even things like automatic enrollment are coming. And so a couple of years ago when we launched our company, we sensed this was a trend that was going to, to take off and that the pandemic would accelerate it. And our bet is that ESAs are going to be very similar to the last 20 years of HSAs. HSAs today are, there's like 33 million accounts in the US, 150 billion in, in assets in the US. And we think ESAs are actually a bigger market opportunity. And 
we're trying to lead that category. That's awesome. And it sounds like you were very poignant in, in determining that this was going to be the next big thing. Uh, maybe a little, a little early, even it sounds with the pending legislation. Is, is there a matching component? Like, is there a deduction taken for the, for the employee and then the, uh, the employer will match something? Yeah, it's um, basically the mechanic, like the typical emergency savings program looks like this. Uh, the employer is the one that introduces it to their employees. We send out invitations and that invitation essentially frames the program. And it says you, the employer, are going to get a free emergency savings account that you have full control and access to. No limitations, no restrictions. You can take it with you if you leave. Doesn't cost you anything as an employee. The employer is paying for it. And it's automatic through your paycheck. And um, meaning that you just have to basically enroll and the money just flows through your paycheck into this emergency savings account. Still an FDIC insured account, still can earn interest. But really the big incentive is the automation, the full control and access and an incentive. So that incentive usually looks like a 25 to $50 sign up bonus, could be a hundred bucks, something like that, just for signing up. Um, then typically we encourage employers to have like a drip campaign. So long as the employee is putting in something like $25 to $50 per paycheck, then the employer will match something like $2 to, to $10, maybe even more. And so it turns into an effective interest rate or rate of return mm-hmm. of like 10 to we see as high as 100% return on your money as long as you participate. And then there's often what we call milestone bonuses. So like if you save for a certain amount of pay periods or you hit a certain amount, your employer might top you up like an extra hundred bucks. And so usually the investment by employers is maybe a hundred to $500 per year per employee. Um, But like the 401k or like the HSA, it's free money. And even better in the case of ESA, there's absolutely no restrictions absolutely no uh, limitations to what you can use the dollars for. So it's super popular with people, especially low to moderate income employees that are just trying to get started on that path to saving. We get almost a 60% adoption when we deploy. And it just shows how popular this concept is. So that 60%, Devin, that means when an employer decides to deploy, they'll get 60% of their employees onto onto the platform? And usually it's like that like in a few weeks. So we just send an email like, hey, do you want to do this program that sounds too good to be true? People are like, yeah, okay, it sounds sounds too good to be true. And once you unpack it for them and like, oh, there's no risk, there's no cost. I can take it with me. I can do whatever I want. I know I should do this anyway. This automates it. Let's do it. And, and so we're basically helping people with something that they could and should do on their own, but they just right. Don't. It's sort of yeah. a behavioral thing by automating it, by putting it in the, the employer's realm on, on the paycheck, you're taking it out of their hands in decision-making so that it, they, they make the right decisions, right? Correct. And this is, um, and really it's a combination of, so like right now, emergency savings is the number one, maybe number two financial priority for the average American. It is. You read all these, these data points about the average American not having $400 for an emergency or something like that. Yeah. This, this addresses that, right? Hundred percent. In fact, we get our users to four hundred dollars within four or five months, and so like that stat's been out there for decades. It's not a new stat, unfortunately, and it reflects the fact that for especially in America, saving is a very very hard thing for people to do, and and you know with all the great fintech innovations and all these great things and and whatnot, nobody's really made a dent into this, and um, and we're demonstrated that we can do it, and a lot of it's based off of the success 
his, you know, what made 401ks and HSAs such a big mm-hmm. success. A lot of it, it's actually less about the incentives, although incentives matter. It's more about the automation and the nudge by your employer to do something. That's been a huge part of what is driven 401ks, especially. Devin, let's talk about distribution. So it's a B2B2C model. Um, so you're tip, you're marketing you're marketing to small businesses, I guess, or to larger businesses. Talk, can you talk about sort of that distribution channel? So when we were very early in the process of, of kind of thinking about Secure Save as a company and how we would do this, we got really excited when we started to dig into the leading HSA providers and looked at people like Health Equity or Wex and how they built their business and, and what their strategy was and whatnot. And we saw, for example, that Health Equity, 80% of their business came through distribution partners, a wide variety of distribution partners. And they ended up with a wide diversity of employers. Lots of little tiny ones, and then many mega companies use people like Health Equity for their HSAs. Health Equity is the number one market share player and has been around for about 20 years. So it's a really good company for us to study. And so we're like, why recreate this? And so we can like put down the, the um, you know, uh, business model canvas, all that stuff that you normally do as a early stage startup. And we're like, let's just copy what they did because it seems like it worked really well. And mm-hmm. the business models and products are very similar. And so we've been running basically that strategy playbook where all we do is emergency savings. That's one of our big competitive differences. It's also something that makes our, our distribution partners very comfortable with us because they know we're not going to sell a product into their customer base that then could potentially lead to competitive differences. And so mm-hmm. it's like a huge point of differentiation we have is when you partner with us is all we do. You get best in class ESAs and a non-competitive partner. Um, we also, um, we so all we do is emergency savings. We work to have by far the best product. And so what we tell them is even the biggest of, of financial services companies out there that we work with, we're like, look, you may have a massive R&D budget, but on this particular topic, ESAs, we're going to out R&D everybody. And, and it's just an easy calculation. Like big companies just can't put so many people on, on every little thing out there. And so we've got an incredible team, great investors, and we deliver the best results. And so as a partner, basically what it is, okay, I get, um, oh, and our third component is we still give them the deposits. And this is kind of, again, the key thing for people like health equity. So all we do is this for non-competitive, we have the best product, and ultimately we give you the thing you want the most, which is the deposits. And so our strategy is more about activating this broad base of partnerships. And so we have people like Transamerica, Truist, which is a top 10 bank, Wells Fargo is a banking partner of ours, and you know people like Milliman, which is a bit, another big record keeper in the 401k space, and on and on and on. And so we're signing deals with all of these different providers so that they can get into the ESA space with a best of B product, a non-competitive partner, and hold the deposits, which is what they want. And so we do do some direct to employer selling, but mainly our business, like health equity, is going to be dominated by helping these partners be active in the ESA space. And that's exactly what the HSA kind of segment has looked like as well. Wow, that's amazing that you can take and um, replicate the playbook uh, from a lateral type product uh, and find success doing that. Um, is there an intention? Um, one of the themes that we've explored on this show is also the payroll processors mm-hmm. moving a little bit more downstream with financial products. Yep. Um, is is there an intention maybe to get there in those types of partnerships, or is that is there is there too much tension there? I guess between uh, you know payroll. I, I guess being being a um, a non threat. 
Yeah. You know, we, we've done better with the 401k record keepers um, and with people that are in the financial wellness space. And a lot of, there's a lot of players in the financial wellness space, insurance companies, uh, big banks. Folks Everybody's like in financial wellness now. Yeah. Yeah. And none of them are really having good success. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And, and some of it is, some of it's PR, but everybody's in financial wellness now. Correct. Yeah. They all want to talk about it and how important it is and employers understand it. But like we actually deliver results that, that lead to true and measurable improvement in financial wellness. Now it's, it's very specific to what this one topic, but, but that is like the foundation of what people's financial health is based on. Do I have money set aside in case things go awry? in my life. Um, and so, but it's interesting on the payroll providers. I think part of it is, is that um, when you talk to these different companies, it's, it's more about who's getting asked by the employers that they support for emergency savings. And so mm. if I'm a benefits provider or I'm in charge of financial wellness at a company and I'm like, you know what? I think emergency savings is interesting. I'm not calling my payroll provider. And that's just what we see in the market. If I'm if I'm a, in charge of benefits or financial wellness at a company, I'm likely to call my 401k provider. I, I might that. even talk to the company providing financial wellness solutions mm-hmm. to me or into the market. They just don't call their payroll company. And so as a result, the payroll companies, when we talk to them, they're like, okay, we kind of get it, but I don't know if this is a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. It's just not a thing for them. Right. Um, which is fine, you know, benefits and, and whatnot are a super fragmented market with so many different players and tons of overlap of providers within a company that you don't have to sign with everybody um, as long as you're signing with the right people. And, and so that's what we've been doing. Amazing. And it's, it's not too too many early stage companies like SecureSave that um, have a super celebrity also sign up um, both as an investor and- a, And that's not uh, me, just to be clear. Yeah. Well, I, it could be inclusive of you. Um, so let's talk about Susie Orman's um, yeah. connection to the company and I guess what 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 it means to have somebody like that on board in terms of your your marketing, your distribution, your branding, your positioning. Yeah, so a little bit of history on, on how we got intro to Susie. So Basam Saliba, who's my co-founder and CTO, he and I worked together for a long time. We're kind of just- um, you know, we've been in financial technology and venture back businesses for, for a long time, worked together for a while. And we started working on Secure Save together. And um, we've done a number of venture back businesses. And so we were working with a, a leading Seattle based BC called Pioneer Square Labs. And um, we were incubating the project with them. We brought the idea to them, working on it over the summer of 2020, like right in the thick of the pandemic. Wow. We hadn't launched the business yet. We were still doing customer discovery, but we had nicknamed the project Secure. So it was Project Secure. And it was something that I really felt passionate about. Like that's what we're trying to help people do is, is to get to a point of feeling and being financially secure. So with all that background, then in the summer, our investor PSL uh, said, hey, you know, we've got a contact into CAA with the big uh, talent agency who Susie Orman works with. And we've talked to CAA and they're like, hey, somebody should do a fintech startup with Susie. Um, do you, would, would this team be interested in talking to him? And so that was brought to me. I was like, of course, I'd love to talk to Susie. You know, long knew who she was and had watched her show on CNBC. And um, so anyway, I got to Susie in like late August and I shared with her the brand the mission of the company, which is to help people feel and be financially secure. And our vision for what we wanted to do, which was imagine how different the pandemic would have been if everybody had at least a few months of emergency savings. I told her how laser focused we wanted to be on emergency savings and uh, and kind of the vision of the strategy of replicating the HSA playbook. 
And honestly, she was like, I'm sold. I'm in. I want to do this. Which, you know, later she's told us, she's like, I get pitched all the time to be sure. all sorts of stuff yeah. in FinTech. And, and she said the difference with what, what we brought to her was everybody tries to convince her what they're going to do and how it's going to make her money. And she's always like, I'm already super rich. I don't need more money. I want to help people. And wow. we were the first team that really brought her a vision of how we were truly going to help people. And that was the differentiator. And so we kind of instantly hit it off. Susie and I are very different in Bassam. We're kind of a, a strange trio of backgrounds and histories and, and personalities and skills. But, you know, opposites attract. And we've had this great magical relationship for two plus years now. And so her involvement is really unique. And she and, she and I, especially very beginning, she did not want to be perceived as a spokesperson. And we immediately saw that that was not going to be what the role of the value add was going to be. And so we didn't announce her as being involved publicly for months until we were live. And investors knew that she was going to be involved, but we didn't talk about it a ton. Mm -hmm. We had you know, a little bit of an element of kind of, hey, she, she's potentially part of what we're going to do. And so her role today is a combination of things. She is very involved behind the scenes, scenes on strategy. So her actual title is chief strategy officer. And um, part of it was because she's just got an amazing sense of the market and people in fintech and financial services. She's just been in it for so long and talking to so many people. And so I was really pleasantly surprised with her innate sense of the market. Um, and then with people, she's got an incredible product sense. She's not a product developer. She's not coding with Bassam and she's not sitting down with our product team and designing stuff, but she has a great innate sense of people and has helped us, I think, just cycle through the product and iterate on it faster. Um, you know, on the strategy side, I, I actually thought she was going to be more scatterbrained, right? I just kind of thought as being someone that didn't have a deep startup history, that she would make all the standard rookie mistakes of like, let's do this and let's do that. And she's product very much like and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, correct. And she's very good at actually keeping Basan and more focused. And I think we're pretty focused as is. But honestly, where she's got the biggest magic and force multiplier for us is on the go-to-market side. You know, she just gives us a level of attention. And even little things like SEO value, SEM value, uh, PR value, events capability, invitations to events. It just gives us such a massive advantage in go-to-market. And, you know, from there, the product kind of takes over. And so it's it's kind of a unique thing. I don't think I could replicate this again if I did another company. Like, hey, go find me a celebrity and let's run this playbook. It's a very unique relationship, personality, and situation. Um, but it's been hugely impactful for us and, and she's been really fun to work with. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of serendipity involved too, in terms of, of getting, getting her on board when for she, sure. when she joined and when you, when you started the company, I want to go back to something you said. I, I started thinking about it as you were explaining the, the HSA playbook, um, to do it as an ESA. I, I wonder getting back to this point about feature creep or product creep, yeah. um, how big that market is, because I have to assume that you, you'll be pulled, especially with, with venture money in to, to, to grow and to expand. Like you're selling yourself as like a very laser focused yep. complementary product. But um, I'm just I'm just curious about what that tension might feel like. Yeah, it's definitely real. I mean, when we talk to VCs, um, you know, I'll make different jokes. And one, one of them is, you know, look, our bet is that emergency savings mountain is big and prominent and that we can climb it and claim it and, and own it for decades. 
And that is a worthy adventure. But I'm going to live or die on that mountain. We're not mm. going to try and lay claim to more peaks around us as we as we attempt this. And, you know, we had one VC who, who turned it around and said, I love to hear that because he goes in his own analogy, he said, every v, every uh, entrepreneur that's come to me with a one-two punch, you know, strategy barely even lands their first punch and hardly right. ever gets an attempt to even get the second one off. And so anytime I hear that kind of like, we're going to do this and then that, like I'm out. And so I think there, and especially now as the fintech market has moved, you know, a lot of these, especially the neo banks that were in the land and expand category, they have been bludgeoned in the market of late. And a lot of that's because their ac acquisition costs are hard and, yep. you know, to get to a scale of the unit economics of having like this portfolio of 20 products is, is super hard. And the banks, the core kind of competitive group that you're trying to attack as a neobank are getting better at, at maintaining and building their own products. Not all of them, but enough of them that has made that really hard to compete. So I think our, our, our strategy as a venture-backed business is is probably well-timed, I think, is like a differentiated, this is our vertical, we're going to attack it, our bet is that it's a big enough, and, and that's what you're joining with. And we give them a lot of examples, and being here in Seattle, there's a number of companies that are in different verticals that we point to. One of my favorites is Avalara, which is mm -hmm. a really boring, under-the-radar tax, sales tax compliance. I know those guys, company. yes. Yeah, they've been super successful, and, and I remember talking to them early, and, you know, being in the space and being a tax at the time, like, yeah, you can do all this stuff. And they're like, no, 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 no. Sales tax. sales tax in different states, different municipalities, right? Yeah. Like, and they're just like, it's such a huge market. We're just going to keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And, um, and it's worked. And so there's a number of good examples that we can point to, you know, but it's interesting. We definitely, there will be a tension and we get asked all the time, like, Hey, what other products can you sell? And we've tested a bunch of stuff with users. And, and really what we found is, is that the more we lean into emergency savings, the better the product works mm -hmm. in the eyes of consumers. They like it more. And, and I've seen this. When I was in tax, I was leading product for one of the major tax software companies. You know, people came to Tax Act where I was at and into it, TurboTax is the same. They come there to get what we joke to get big refund fast. I just want my tax refund. I want it as big as possible. Big I want it really fast. quick. I don't want to buy car insurance from you. I don't want an right. IRA. I don't want any of that crap. I want big refund fast. <laughs> and, and all of the tax software companies have struggled to sell and do anything mm -hmm. that is not immediately connected to big refund fast. And, um, and so that's kind of our mentality is how do we build and maintain trust that we're going to be the best emergency savings product? But yes, then it becomes like, is that a big enough market? And again, we point to the HSA market and say, you know, hey, health equity is depending on where the market's at a five to $10 billion market cap company that's yep. still growing at 20 plus percent. Wow. Wex, same thing, like the second mm -hmm. biggest provider in that space. It's a $500 million a year revenue business growing at 23% a year. That's super profitable. And that's the other thing that, that investors really like is the, the jury's still out on a lot of these fintechs of how permanently, how permanent is the market? Mm -hmm. Buy now, pay later being a good example. Like it was hot a year ago, but is that still really like a, a sustainable business? And second, how profitable is it? And a lot of these companies, it's not known if they can actually make money at scale. At for Unit economics coming to bite them. Yeah. So we were very focused on that early. Is this a profitable business with a lot of legs? And again, we just point back to HSAs and say, like, these are kind of the same businesses. And so if you believe at the take rate and this has got legs, 
it's going to look like this business. And that's a great business for a very long period of time. So what is the revenue model for SecureSafe? How, how, who do you charge and how does that work? Yeah, so it's you know, it's a straight copy from HSAs. So it's there's a lot of what's called PEPM per employee mm-hmm. per month, and it's about the same range. It can be you know down to sub one dollar for really really large employers to as high as three to five dollars for smaller companies. Um, then we make money on deposits. We also make money from partners who integrate our solution into their products. So record keepers, financial wellness providers, they pay us platform fees or they they cover those PEPM fees so that they can bundle our solution into their product and then give it away to the market. Mm. Um, but either way, we make that PEPM. We make money on the deposits. So we work with multiple custodians, which is really unique to us. And so, as I said, we can go to those banking partners and say, hey, or, or record keepers or whoever they may be and say, hey, you want the deposits, we can bring them to you and we get a little bit of a share of that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there is a small collection of things that are very tightly knit to emergency savings. They can be transactional things, they can be different types of insurance products, they can be higher level of, of you know, depository solutions that we can make money off of at scale. And that's basically the model that you see with uh, HSAs. And honestly, we didn't expect, and I don't think anybody did, how fast the interest rate environment would grow and change. And so the depository situation has become a much more interesting part of our business model than we expected, much quicker as well. Devin, it's been fascinating talking to you about SecureSafe. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Zach.